welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Supply Chain Podcast, where we invite industry leaders to answer your burning questions and provide insights into the world of logistics. Today, we're going to dive deep into the world of transport and ESG to understand how these two can work best together. We're going to talk about what challenges supply chain professionals face when they're talking about these two potentially opposing subject matters. And we're going to think about how the industry is dealing with customer expectations now and moving into the future. So I'm really delighted to welcome my two colleagues this morning, Tutu Akinkoi, who's our Go Green lead here at DHL Supply Chain, and Ross McLean, who's Global Head of Transport for Product Development. Tutu and Ross, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lou. Hi, Tutu. Hi, Ross. Let's start by thinking about the type of relationship we have between your two topics. Because when I was preparing for this um, for this podcast today, I was thinking, wow, transport, ES&G, are those opposing ends of the same spectrum? Um, where are we? How do you guys work together? Are you friends? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think, well, yeah, I, I, hopefully I would say we are friends. Um, I, I do think that, that 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 is an interesting thing to explore. So if we, I suppose, if we take um, maybe particularly the environmental side of things, for, for example, uh, energy and fuels. So um, the International Energy Agency estimates um, the transport um, accounts for about 37% of CO2 emissions um, from end use sectors in 2021. So I suppose on the surface of things, it looks like those two things are opposing. Uh, mm. We also know that you know with growing consumer demand, that, 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 that potentially would only increase. But I do think back to the question though, um, can they be friends? Um, yes, they can be friends. In the example that I gave, if we decouple carbon and decouple that from growth and effectively um, introduce decarbonization as a standard, then yes, they can be friends. Um, you know, so, so transport with standardization, you know, with innovation, with cleaner fuels, with thinking about safety, for example, you know, what are those things that we can put on our vehicles that help vulnerable road users? I do think transport and ESG can be friends. They're acquaintances now, but they can be friends. Yeah, I think I'd agree to, to because um, when I think about my time in the transport industry over the last 20 years, Lou, I would say that a lot of the things related to the E, the S and the G and improvements in the E, the S and the G, a lot of those things are things that we've been working on in transport as a matter of course to a certain extent, so optimization, improvements of that nature. And now, in this day and age, it's really about maximising that and introducing new technologies and really looking to really push the boundaries of what we've been doing up until now with this sort of extra factor, this E, this S and this G factor in the equation. Yeah, and look, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when, when trucking was, was, a, was a dirty sport. It was, it was hard. The, the, uh. the stuff that you used to see coming out, the back of trucks was horrendous. You don't see that so much anymore. Um, and when, when we talk to, look, I only tend to talk to drivers at, at DHL supply chain, but when you speak to these guys, these guys are professionals. Um, they, they know that they have an impact on the environment in particular. They know that what they're doing in increasingly needs to be, um, responsible in that regard and they're very passionate about it they're very passionate about the role they play in in safeguarding the future from an environmental perspective 
that's absolutely right. And I think, as you, yeah, as you say, that the industry's changing um, for, for sure. I mean, one of the things that, that, that we certainly do within DHL supply chain, so I'm going green lead, as you said, for DHL supply chain in the UK and Ireland, um, is to help our people understand what those impacts are, but also how it is that they can contribute towards, you know, minimizing those impacts through training, et cetera. So I think, you know, really being honest about that, but also honest about how it is that they can play a role and how we all can pl collectively play a role um, starts to really help shape what, you know, what that future of the industry is, certainly, certainly from an ESG perspective. Sorry, Lou, and just to pick up on one of your points, you said something that was really interesting. Back in the 90s or the 80s, the diesels were dirty and creating lots of tailpipe smog, yeah. right? And then we have the Euro standards in the trucks. And now we, we go from one, two, three, now we're approaching seven. And that's a great example of the continuation of the sort of core features of the transport industry where we seek to improve, we seek to continuously get better. And now it's almost like we're supercharging it at yeah. this point, right? So we're really looking for to go from sort of a 50 out of 100 to 90, 80 out of 100 and new technologies, but also a lot of the same skill sets that existed and we've been developing over the last two or three decades. So, yeah, they are friends and it is a progression forwards. Yeah. And you think about some of the things that, that, that we talk about in, in our organisation uh, when we're trying to improve things. You think about people, you think about process, you think about technology and possibly about regulation. And I think when when, when I was considering what's happening here, I think you're absolutely right, Ross. There are all sorts of regulations that have come in that have tried to make the transport industry cleaner. And I think part of the supercharge has come with the people. Uh, when you've got regulation, you know, initially it's just a pain and it, it's, it's something that people can be quite resentful of. And, you know, why has this happened? Why have we got to do this? Even if you're thinking in, in the long term, it's a good thing. Part of the supercharge for me is the fact that our own colleagues are demanding this. Um, the the world is clearly demanding it, and and it's it's a it's a it's an action for the good, not just we've got to do this because we've been told to do it through regulation. Um, and that's what I mean by the passion of our drivers. Actually, when you speak to the drivers that um, that that work for us, many of them are saying, "Look, we, we've got to get this right." And it's not just about the fuel that goes into the truck; it's about the way we drive. It's about the way we plan our routes. Um, it's all of those things that come together that is accelerating change at a, at a vast rate of knots all of a sudden. I couldn't agree more. Um, a lot of the conversations that, that I have also, you know, with, with people, with drivers, but also with, I suppose, that, you know, the, the demographic of um, yeah, some of our apprentices that are coming yeah. in as well. It's about the future, Lou. It definitely is about the future. People want to do the right thing. Um, for the future as well, you know, that recognition that it's not just about the here and now, but, but ensuring that, you know, we have a, a future that is sustainable. Yeah. Um, and you're right. It's, it's, that, it's that younger generation, isn't it? It's that younger demographic, which tends to be driving, um, driving that expectation. You know, I, I was recruiting a couple of weeks ago and we yeah. always say that an interview is both ways. Um, but for the first time, I really felt that, you know, that the, the young lady I was interviewing was was interviewing me to find out whether DHL um, is as committed to the things we say we're committed to as 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 she wanted us to be. Um, she wants to work for an organization that is very, very strong in, in ES&G. Um, and that's really positive. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for a future 
um, where our younger generations are, are demanding that. And that's right. And, and I think, uh, and that comes to the G aspect, I suppose, of the ESNG. I think people um, rightfully demand that, but also rightfully demand that accountability. And you ask again the question, you know, can Transport and ESG be friends? Um, when it comes to thinking about the impact that, you know, an organization can have on the environment, the G comes in because you have to make sure that you are, you have the robust processes in place, that you're accounting properly, um, that you are declaring those emissions properly, and that when you, when it is that you're taking initiatives and taking action, again, you're able to credibly say that these are the sort of um, changes that we're bringing in. So absolutely, accountability is linked back to that governance aspect and making sure that there is credibility um, behind the statements that you're making. So yes, um, I, I can imagine you know that that interview scenario because that because because it happens to me a yeah. lot as well. Yeah, and it's good. That's really important, isn't it? That governance topic and yep. have it written down, have have the plans in place. But I think also one thing that I see that's really important is living it, like proving that it's real from a management team, from the leadership team, really bringing it to life in the way that you go about your sort of day to day jobs within an organisation. I think that's really important as well, so that then when people come to interviews, when people are talking to current employees, they know that the organisation that they're talking about really believes those values, that it's not just written down on a piece of paper, that it's about the culture of the organisation as well. I could not agree more, Ross, because, uh, I mean, listen, you can, you can smell inauthenticity, can't you? Um, and and that's, what, that's what she was testing out at the interview. Um, we strayed a little bit away from transport there. Um, I took you down a I took you down a route I didn't entirely expect us to go down quite so soon. Um, coming back to that question around transport and ES and G, what are we seeing from our customers? Are we seeing a change in their buying behaviours? Are we are we seeing a change in 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 what they want when they come to an organisation like ours for solutions? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, from my own personal experience, I work a lot with customers. Um, on the day-to-day business side of things. And I would say in about the start of 2021, there was a real shift, a real change. So customers were always talking about sustainability in terms of transport. And there was a few that were acting on that sort of discussion, that desire. But really, a few years ago, there was a, a big step shift. And I think that's probably correlated to when targets are coming in, right? So 2025, 2030, Perhaps the pressure's coming on, perhaps organisations are starting to really look at those numbers and realise that they need to start acting. So the conversations have changed a little bit from, you know, very discussive conversations, what's possible, what might it look like, to what can we do? How can we get started on this journey? Where do we need to be? How can we get to where we want to be five years from now? And how can you help us get there, DHL, by the way, because... We look to you for a bit of guidance and a bit of leadership here in terms of technical operations and sort of strategic planning as well. How, how do you find that, Tutu? Is this the sort of conversation that you're drawn into in your role? Yeah, and I was just about to add to that. So similar to Ross, um, I, I certainly have a lot of um, engagement with our customers. And the, the targets piece um, is essential to that. So, you know, a lot of customers are establishing science-based targets. And, and with that, you start to plan ahead. Um, so whereas we used to have those sort of, you know, two-year, three-year conversations, you're having the five-year, the 10-year conversations. Um, and very specifically, actually having a roadmap. So a number 
of our customers increasingly want that roadmap. So it's not so much, a, sometimes we used to have conversations about um, one or two initiatives, you know, you do something and then that's it. But actually now it's the roadmap. It's right, so, you know, what am I doing in year one? What am I doing in year two, five and 10? And those sorts of conversations are becoming the, absolutely becoming the norm. Lou, our customers are expecting that in our operations, we are able to collaboratively work together because it, it is a shared, it is a shared goal. You know, we're able to collaboratively work. It's a shared, yeah, it's absolutely a shared goal. And so it's about collaboratively working together um, for that shared goal. So certainly, yeah, it, 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 you know, where I think what I'm also starting to see as well is when you're thinking about those collaborations, um, the sorts of solutions that you're exploring, you start to expand what those solutions could be. So, you know, we know that uh, decarbonization particularly is, is, is long-term, you know, it has a long-term focus if you want to do it properly. And so some of the quick wins that maybe would have been on the table before and nothing else, and um, we're going into those longer-term solutions as well, those things that cost more, those things that, um, you know, you need more infrastructure for. That's a key point, actually. I think the because Lou, I think it's fair to say that there's we deal with a lot of customers and they're at different positions on their journey, right? Some are a bit more advanced yeah. than others, um, and the more mature customers starting to look at a wider scope. As Tutu said, that's really a key point, and also that long term view. Looking at things over a longer term is such a facilitator of change. Yeah, and, and Ross, you 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 reference the point that you've been in transport for twenty years. Have you seen a change over that period? Um, are you talking to the same people that you were talking to twenty years ago? Is, is the buyer group different? Who's in it? Yeah, so it's an evolving picture, really. Um, there's definitely been a change. There's definitely been a change. And what we're beginning to see is more sort of sustainability specialists, particularly in the last couple of years. So it's kind of gone from procurement and operations. Okay, so they were sort of drivers, maybe a little bit of the business imperative there um, to include maybe someone with a view on sustainability in those discussions. To now, a lot of companies are having chief sustainability officers, regional sustainability officers, so it's definitely factoring into the sort of the, the buying equation, let's say. So perhaps in the past it was service and cost and now perhaps service and cost plus environmental impact as well in that buying decision. Yeah. And, and, and like I say, I feel like regulation um, has been the catalyst for change. But now, you know, organisations like ourselves and like those of our customers are partnering to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because we're regulated to do it. Um, and I think, you know, what probably what you're starting to see is the collaboration between those sustainability officers and perhaps the procurement um, transport managers, um, those more traditional buyers in the, um, in the transport customer journey, um, collaborating be because it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah, interesting time. So I, I guess in answer to our first question, I think what we're saying is that those roles probably are friends these days, which, which is great. Um, so if that's what happens with the people, let's talk a bit about technology. Um, how do you set yourself up for green transport? What, how can technology support us in this shift? Ross, let, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. So um, I think that technology is clearly a real sort of 
drivering this, right? So I almost think of it as there's kind of three pieces to it. There's maximize what you have. So certainly burn less, um, be more efficient, load the vehicles. There's certainly things where we can continue to improve what we have. Um, then there's a sort of piece which is about the collaboration, which we touched on before, where we, we're thinking, what can we do to really maximize our, our efficiencies? So outside of just improving where we are, what can we change? Can we change the lead time? Can we change the delivery slots? Can we increase the sort of uh, co-loading or the shared user characteristics of our operations? And then perhaps the final piece where maybe the biggest returns exist, certainly if you want to keep the same sort of characteristics of your delivery chain, is the technology. And that's where we talk about ultimately the fuel sources that we use and the sort of drive chain technology. So that's your gas vehicles, your um, battery electric vehicles, and potentially also in some some in instances, bicycles, right? So human powered vehicles, let's not forget those as well. Right. And, and, and is that the same the world over? Um, Tutu, when, when you're having conversations, I, I know you're, you're in the UK. Is this something that is driving the UK, um, the, the UK's demand for technology? I mean, yeah, technology absolutely plays a key role um, in delivering those, you know, those huge carbon savings. I think that um, looking at the combination. So when it comes to it, back to the question again, when it comes to greening your transport, um, I think it's key to say that there isn't one silver bullet um, and it has to be a mix of those things. You know, it has to be a mix of those practices. It has to be a mix of those technologies. But also picking on the technologies, um, quite often, sometimes there, you know, there's a tendency to only look at may, maybe electric as an example, but low carbon fuels definitely have a role. And that's the same um, across the, the globe, blue. So you know, the, the ability to deploy low carbon fuels in the form of, for example, hydro-treated vegetable oil or HVO um, is a drop-in alternative that at least allows us, you know, in the interim whilst the technology is developing for battery electric or for hydrogen-powered uh, uh, fuel cells, for, for at least uh, for, for, for us to be able to get, you know, to, the, to that decarbonization element. But, but, but I guess it's not just about decarbonization as well. So greening on transport, you know, we can look at natural resource efficiency, um, packaging, you know, what are we doing at end of life? How do we make things more circular? So there, there are many things that we can be considering uh, around that element of greening your transport. And yes, it does apply across the globe. So what's our role here? Are we a provider or an educator? Do our customers come to us asking for these things or do they come to us asking for um, our support in providing a greener solution and then we work together to that end? Tutu, starting with you. I think we're both. I think we're definitely both. Um, I mean, what we've been able to show, uh, going back to when we, the Go Green program started, which was about 2008, um, is that, you know, we have tried things, we've tested things and we've deployed them. So quite often, you know, we are those people that can come in and design the, the green solution. Um, so we are definitely an educator, but we're also a provider, we're an enabler. Um, because of the scale that we have, we're also able to connect the dots with our customers, uh, with fuel suppliers, and really engage in also those solutions of the future. So I think we, we are both, that's our role, is to help facilitate, is to help deploy, but it's also to help facilitate um, when it comes to thinking about what those alternatives are. Sure. Ross, how, how do you feel about that? 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we're facilitators is a great word, right? Because ultimately we want to provide some of these solutions, whether that means we invest our own fleet, whether it means we work with carriers. Um, but we're in a kind of good position because we do have large operations. We can pull our knowledge and insight and we can bring that to the market, to the customers and share that and kind of distill our knowledge based on the operations we run around the, around the globe. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is there's part of the technology story is also about the infrastructure that supports it. So HVO, for example, is a great technology. It is a sort of um, drop-in replacement for diesel, but it's not available everywhere. Same with a lot of the compressed gases. Um, the supply of those and the infrastructure to supply those is somewhat limited. Um, and even with battery electric trucks, ensuring that you can get enough power to site to charge those trucks, charging cycles, how you operate those in practice. That's also to do with infrastructure and how you can deploy that in different regions. It varies. So that that is kind of also part of the education around the technology side as well. It's a really good point, Ross. And, and I was going to come on to ask you both about change management, um, because no matter how much appetite you might have for this change, if the world isn't ready, if the infrastructure isn't ready, um, you, you've got a problem on your hands. So what are we doing? How are we leading the change? And, and are there further collaborations that are needed? And, and how might we start that? Ross, let, let's start with you on that one. So it's a big change management story, isn't it? Because um, there's behavioural change and then there's kind of theoretical, philosophical change, right? So companies need to think differently about what they're optimising for, what their objectives uh, kind of are. I think at the start I mentioned that maybe we're changing between service and cost and now we're adding ESG elements in there, right, as well. So managing that change it's a lot about facilitating the sort of equations to work. So how do we encourage the behaviours that we want to see? What can organisations, governments, providers, suppliers, how can we make that change feasible and practical and get it to return value for a business? Um, I think the motivation, particularly from big organisations, is there to change. It's the right thing to do. There's the right reasons to do it. There's business imperatives to do it. We should mention that, right? Because more and more organizations are being held to account for ESG, which is absolutely correct. So the imperative is there, but what's the motivation for change? And I think we can support on the technology, we can support with the solution, and we can help facilitate the kind of justification side, but that's where we do need a lot of collaboration with organisations, with our customers, with our suppliers, and with governments as well. Yeah. And, and Tutu, what's your point of view? Did I paint too rosy a picture when I said that I sense within our own organisations, I sense our people demanding this? Do you see that same demand for change with our customers? Um, I, I don't think you painted too rosy a picture. I think it's the reality is that people are demanding it. That's true. Right. Um, but it doesn't take away the difficulty that it's a it's a large you know subject. Um, it's a complex subject. Um, our customers are definitely demanding the change. I think that sometimes change, and again we talk about it as you know being a a, a big complex topic. I think sometimes um, there is a there's a probably a level of I think inertia, you know, a level of fear that says. 
you know, crikey, this is so big, you know, how, how, how do we really break the knot? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, um, so, so, so sometimes that inertia, you know, just makes it really difficult to break the mold and make the start. But to something yeah. that Ross said, I think accepting responsibility and knowing that we don't have a choice actually breaks that mold and allows us to, to start with what, what it is that we can do. Um, one point that I will make though about change and making change easier is that when we kind of look at those processes, so you know, we talk about behavior change and technology change, um, they're very intrinsically linked. So mm. most times, you know, if you're changing technology, you're probably also relying on people to change behavior and change processes. So it pays to think about what those impacts could be beforehand and actually have a way to address those things. And then that way, you know, you can find it easier to adopt the technology, find it easier to roll out the, the initiative right. because you've got people on board. So there are ways to help, you know, manage this change process. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not easy. Um, I, you know, I don't think we can make any bones about that. It's not easy, but, but, but we, we don't have a cho choice and we do need to do something about it and take that action. So, um, we all know if we're if we're speaking honestly, we all know that some customers are better than others in this regard. What characterizes without naming them? What characterizes the good ones? Ross, what makes the the, the really positive customer behaviors stand out for you? What what is it about some customers that makes them really nail this? Yeah, I think there are a few things, and I think some of them are kind of very material, right? So some customer the science based target clearly very interested in it, very committed to it, that helps. Customer who's got a long-term view about collaboration and partnership. Customer who's able to be flexible. Um, these yeah. things facilitate, yeah? Um, there's also some less tangible things. So is it really, when we talked earlier about culture, is it really an embedded culture? Is, is the customer kind of still working their way to, to making it part of their sort of core values? Um, but very material things. And one of the things is, is there a sort of internal carbon pricing? Okay, does the customer place a value, a monetary value on what the sort of cost of a carbon, a reduction of a ton of carbon, for example, might be worth to that business? And these, sort of, these are the sort of things that can really move discussions forward when you're looking to think about how can we justify that investment? What's it worth to us as a business? What's it going to cost us not to do that as a business, right? As well, what's the impact on our brand, our image, and ultimately mm. our customer base? Right. And, and, and Tutu, when, when you walk in and see a customer, what, what are the signals that make you go, this is going to be great? I mean, usually um, they get it. <laughs> I don't know how to put what that is, is but usually there's a, there's a, you, a you walk in, yeah, there's a sense because you, you walk in and you feel like, you know, this is a customer that really wants to be bold and ambitious and really wants to go there. And quite often that lends itself to partnerships. So, you know, we talk about collaboration, we talk about partnerships. It's usually a customer that is willing to, to go on that partnership um, journey with you because then, you know, you work through, you know, what are the options, you work through the potential obstacles, you work through the sort of commercial challenges that, you know, Ross was just talking about. Um, and, and yeah, a customer that's bold and ambitious. Um, yeah, we're not asking a lot here, Lou, are we? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, f for me, what I'm hearing is we tend to talk about this as if it's as, as it's a, a transport initiative. It's not. It's a way of life. 
Um, and I think, you know, some of the regulations that have gone in of necessity have focused on things like transport, um, have focused on things like the way we recruit or the way we hire, the way we retain. But it's actually this is a way of life that is going to um, result in the sort of changes we need if we're going to meet all of those targets that we're holding each other accountable to. It's a culture, Lou. It's a culture. Yeah, it is. To what extent? Is cost an inhibitor? Ross, starting with you. In the one hand, the, be as efficient, maximise what you've got, can actually reduce the cost sometimes, right? So there's an actual win there to be had. So reduce the cost, reduce the carbon. If you reduce the amount of fuel you're burning, you're saving money. So there is a win in terms of cost in, in a lot of instances. But as we move that up the sophistication curve and we start talking about new equipment, new fleets, new technologies there is a significant cost impact and we can't get away from that. So making that work, that's why it's so important for companies to place a value on carbon and the value of carbon reduction, because without that, it's very difficult to really scale those solutions out. You can do a little bit, you can introduce one battery electric truck, but to scale it out, which is where we're looking now into the future, then we really have to start having some serious conversations about the cost impact. So it is a major thing that we need to address. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Tutu, Ross has just made a really good point, looking into the future. Starting with you, where do you see the future of transport and supply chains in, in the context of, of the ESG agenda? So, um, I mean, I'm a sustainability leader, right? So I think from my point of view, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a purist. Um, I mean, I see, I mean, the future for me is zero um, and, I'll, yeah. and I'll contextualize that. So it's, you know, zero emissions, um, it's zero accidents. Um, you know, we talk about ESG, it's, it's zero numbers of people feeling like the transport industry, you know, isn't for them. It's zero waste. Yeah. It's, it, it's, the, the future is zero. Um, I have to say, you know, we're a long way from that kind of zero future. Um, because there are challenges with infrastructure, there are a number of challenges as we're just talking about now with cost and, you know, there's a mindset thing, but I do genuinely believe that that's where we're going. I also see digitalization and playing a large part in being able to enable the future. So taking that data, making informed um, decisions about that data, taking miles off the road, uh, just things yeah. like that, you know, absolutely gives us the quantification that we need to make some of those decisions on the on the road to, to zero. But the future is also now, Lou. The future is what can we do now and stop doing yeah. now and um, to get ready for you know the the the, the longer term stuff that we, that we all absolutely need to to, to hit um, because it is it is our world and it's the right thing to do. Completely. And and Ross, how do you see the future? Yeah, I think I'd echo what Tutu said really. Um, data I think already super important it's already really important to the transport business and i just only see that becoming a bigger and bigger bigger factor um, i think that data really will grow in two ways one it's about the connectivity so what data we can get and how quickly we can access and use it and two the the nature of that data right so we're beginning to see traffic information weather information being used in optimization topics. So the data piece is huge. I think the change in fuel and, and supply of uh, power to trucks, let's say, so will it be hydrogen? Will it be battery electric? Will it be gas? Will it be sort of biodiesel, the HVO, HVO topics? 
I think that, that will obviously increase over time. Infrastructures, I think, will develop to support perhaps a different type of delivery chain. So we haven't touched on sort of autonomous vehicles, but we're beginning to see trials happening. We've done a few trials at DHL. It may change the slightly the nature of networks, etc. So this could be something which also ties into efficiency and carbon reduction in the future. It's fascinating, isn't it? Um, I think when when I started to research the the sort of questions and the sort of conversations we were going to have today, you inevitably start with fuel. Um, And fuel is just one of the levers we can pull here um, to to reach those targets we all aspire to. Um, Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. I think if we can continue on the journey where we've got this awesome mix of aspiration for the future you know our goal has to be to reach those zeros that you talked about to two plus pragmatism around um you know the the journey and the enormity of the journey in one sense that we have to take that mix of aspiration and pragmatism is absolutely going to get us there Um, and i think the other thing that i heard is every little helps every piece that we can add to this immense jigsaw is going to help us build that that picture um i took delivery of my first electric vehicle yesterday so i like to think i know i'm so excited um so i like to think i'm starting to do my little bit and if we can all do our little bit then um i think the future is inevitably bright so thank you both for joining me today um and thank you for listening we've reached the end of our journey for this episode Tutu and Ross, your insights have been so valuable and it's been really fascinating to talk to you both. The podcast is available as usual on Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube. Until next time, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Lou.